one announcement on um, Wednesday night. You better write this down. You're going to show up and be here all by yourself. Wednesday night, October the 11th, there will be no prayer meeting or Bible class that Wednesday night. We will cancel that particular week. So make sure you mark your calendars that Wednesday night, no prayer meeting or Bible class. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life. And this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned. But he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saves us, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's Word this morning, let's make sure we're in fellowship, ready to study God's Word. We do that through using 1 John 1, 9 if necessary. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The learning of the Word of God and the study of God's Word is done under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. Whenever we sin, we quench or stifle the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit, so it's necessary for us to confess our sins in privacy to God the Father, and He instantly forgives us and restores us to fellowship, and then the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit resumes under the filling of the Spirit. So we always take a few moments in silent prayer to begin our class to make sure we're ready, and then we begin. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the great salvation that we have, that when Jesus Christ went to the cross, he did so on our behalf as our substitute. And there he paid the penalty for every sin in human history, that by faith alone in Christ alone we might have eternal life. That the issue, therefore, is no longer what we do. The issue is Jesus Christ and what we, in our response to the cross, what we decide in relation to him. Father, we pray now as we continue our study of his work on the cross that you might help us to understand these things and be challenged by the depth and breadth of all that he has done for us, that we might be motivated to greater positive volition, to spiritual growth, that we might mature and glorify you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to John chapter 19. John chapter 19, verses 17 through 24, and we are continuing our study of the crucifixion of Christ. Two weeks ago, we finished up with the trials of Christ, the 
three religious trials before the Jewish leaders and the three civil trials before two before Pontius Pilate, one in the middle under Herod Agrippa I, uh, then we have come now to the point where the decision has been made to crucify him. Now what I have done, starting in verse 17 and starting last week, is to break out various factors of this day in order for us to gain a greater and fuller appreciation for what took place when Christ went to the cross. Each gospel presents us with a slightly different snapshot of the events that took place during that particular day. None of them give us the full picture. So what I am trying to do is go through uh, and complement what John gives us in John 19 with what Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us and try to put these events together in some sort of a, um, uh, a harmony so that we can understand all the dimensions of what took place when Christ was on the cross. What I have done this time, as we look at the overhead, is that I'm trying to put the passages together. So when you look at that up there on the board, I am, the words are a flowing narrative, but they don't all come from... They don't all come... It'll take a minute for that to warm up. They don't all come from one passage. So I have put in parenthesis at the beginning of the phrase where that comes from. So, for example, it will read John 19:17a. Then they took Jesus, therefore, and he went out bearing his own cross. And then we'll shift to Matthew 27:32a, which reads, "As they were going." And then we'll shift to Mark 15:21, as they pressed into service, a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene the father of Alexander and Rufus. And then we'll pick up Luke 23:26 and placed on him the cross to carry behind Jesus. So thus, by putting together different phrases, different verses from the different Gospels, we'll get a full account of what takes place during this time when Jesus Christ is going to the cross and they are being crucified. This is one of the most dramatic moments and days in human history. And we, the way the writers, each one puts it together, is very much relies upon, in some cases, the, the dramatic uh, format of that day. And you see various uh, pauses, asides, interludes, where, where different groups are almost function like a Greek chorus in a Greek drama. And I'm going to build this scene by scene as we go through. So that's sort of your outline uh, development. We'll start with scene one, the procession along the way. This is along what's called the Via Dolorosa, or the Way of Tears in Jerusalem. I don't know how accurate that is historically, but we're not going to be looking at pictures or the exact road in Jerusalem, but Jesus is being taken from the praetorium where he has been whipped and flogged twice, beaten where he has been used as a human punching bag by the Roman soldiers so that by this time he is, he is bloody and bruised. He has been beaten beyond recognition in his face. He has the crown of thorns jammed down upon his head. Uh, he has uh, spent the night sweating blood, so he is 
a horrible, repulsive sight by this time. And they take him out and they put upon him the cross that he is going to, to carry to Golgotha. First thing I want to note here is that what he is carrying is not the full cross. We've all seen the pictures where you have the, the full cross being carried by Christ. And we'll study this in a little more detail in a minute. But there are two sections to the cross. The cross piece itself is called the patibulum. The patibulum. And the uh, vertical piece is called the stipes, or in other... In Latin, it is called the, um, let me see here, I've lost the word this morning. I'll find it in a minute. It is, uh, it is, and that is planted, it is the vertical piece that is permanently planted at the place of execution. And so all that Jesus is carrying is the cross piece, the uh, patibulum, and it would be carried across his shoulders like a yoke with his arms over it, probably tied on so he wouldn't drop it. And this is placed upon his back to carry out to the place of execution. The picture that John gives us here is a fulfillment of the type of Isaac who carries his own wood up to Mount Moriah in Genesis 22.6 for the burnt offering when God told Abraham that he was to sacrifice his son, his only son. There's the uh, typology there that he is a picture of Christ going to the cross. And then, of course, God stopped Abraham at the last minute and provided a substitute. But all of that was a portrayal of Jesus Christ. And so just as Isaac carried his own wood for the sacrificial pyre up to Mount Moriah, so Jesus is carrying his own cross to the place of the skull. And as they are going, they don't go very far, and Jesus, in his physically weakened condition from being beaten and being um, whipped, cannot go any further. He collapses physically, and so we are told that they press into service a passerby coming in from the country. So he's not part of the crowd. He's been out on the country and he's coming in on the road. Now, we know from ancient writers, ancient Romans, such as Quintilian, who reports that criminals were always crucified along major roads, major points of travel, so that crowds would see them and be moved by fear. Plautus, who was a famous um, Roman playwright, stated that uh, criminals carried the crossbeam, just the patibulum, not the staticulum, which is the vertical piece. That's called the staticulum. They did not carry that. They only carried the patibulum on the way to the execution site, and there it would be raised and fixed to the uh, vertical piece. Now, this is also in fulfillment of Old Testament uh, 
types and mandates that the blasphemer was always to be crucified or stoned or executed outside of the gates, according to Leviticus 24:14 and Nehemiah 15:35 to or Numbers 15:35 to 56. The blasphemer was to be stoned outside of the gates. And at this time in history, the site of Golgotha, or what we believe was Golgotha, we know that, that at that time it was outside the city because of the description of the, of the Gospels. But what we believe to be Golgotha, that particular area, was soon incorporated into the city of Jerusalem. A few years after this, Herod Agrippa had to expand Jerusalem and built a third wall around the old city. And at this time, the site of Golgotha and the garden and the garden tomb was incorporated within the city of, of Jerusalem. So here we see that on the way, Jesus is physically exhausted. He's been beaten. And it is Simon of Cyrene who is pulled out of the crowds. Now, no one knows who he is, and you might read various uh, fictional accounts or legends about his later life. All that we know about Simon is what we read here in this particular verse, that he was from Cyrene, which was the capital city of the province of Lydia in North Africa. And there was a, he was probably Jewish. He could have been Gentile, but he was probably Jewish, had traveled to uh, Jerusalem for the holy feast time of, of uh, Passover. There were, we know that the Romans had established a large colony, or excuse me, Ptolemy I of of Egypt had established a large colony of Jews in Cyrene about 300 B.C. So that there was a large segment of that population that was Jewish. So it's very possible that he's there. And it's interesting that Mark, who is writing as... uh, 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 writing the Gospel of Luke really from Peter's perspective. We, most people believe that, that Mark, after he failed with Paul and Barnabas and was sent back home, or, or Paul and Barnabas wouldn't take, or Paul would not take him along on the second missionary journey, that he later attached himself to Peter. And he was with Peter in Rome, and it's pretty clear from the Markan account that he has little insights into Jesus that only Peter would have because they only occurred at times when when Peter was with the Lord. So he's in Rome, and he makes his comment when he writes his gospel that Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now, there's a mention of Rufus at the end of Romans, so it could be the same person, but this kind of a little note seems to suggest that his readers would know or be familiar with Alexander and Rufus. Well, we don't know who they were, and uh, it just seems to suggest that there's some familiarity there which which would again ground this into the historical reality of his readers. So they press into service a passerby named Simon, and they place the cross on his back, and he carries it to Golgotha. And then we have an interlude, a choral interlude, related to the prophecy to the daughters of Jerusalem in Luke 23, verses 28 to 32. As he is going along the way, there is a crowd of women there who are mourning him, which is very typical of of an execution scene. There would be a group that would be mourning, and these would be the followers, uh, some of the followers of Jesus. 
And he turns to them and he says, Daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Now, I find it somewhat unusual that here in the midst of this dramatic time when Jesus is just physically exhausted and beaten, that he stops and makes this kind of a statement. But it is a warning, a prophetic warning of what is going to happen to Jerusalem. He addresses the women there in the vocative idiom, daughters of Jerusalem, which comes from the Old Testament and is used to address the inhabitants of the city. It's used many times in the Old Testament. In 2 Samuel 1.24, you have the term daughter of Zion, uh, or daughters of Jerusalem. You have the phrase daughter of Zion in Zephaniah 3.14 and Zechariah 9.9. And you have the phrase daughter of Jerusalem in the Song of Solomon, or as it's known in the Hebrew text, the Song of Songs, 2.7. And this is a warning of the coming persecution and destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. He says, don't weep for me, don't grieve for me. Shift your grief to the Jewish people who have uh, crucified and who are, have rejected their Messiah. And what he means by this, he says, weep for yourselves and for your children because as a result of your negative volition, divine judgment is coming. Behold, the days are coming, and this is talking about 70 A.D. It's not a prophecy for the tribulation. Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. And here he is quoting a proverbial statement of the time, and that emphasizes the fact that it would be better not to have children, because if you if you had had children, then then they would suffer such enormous Uh, go through such enormous suffering in that war and the destruction of Jerusalem that it would be better never to have had children at all. And the suffering would be so intense that you would be saying to the mountains, this is just the imagery here, fall on us and to the hills cover us. In other words, it would be better not to have been born than to go through all of this heartache and suffering. And then he says at the end, if they do these things. Now, who's he referring to? He's referring to the leaders of the nation. If they do these things when the tree is green, in other words, if when the Messiah is present and you have all of the blessing of the presence of the Messiah and everything is is positive and bountiful and fruitful, if they are this negative now and this destructive now, how much more destructive will they be when it is a time of discipline and cursing, a time of famine and drought when the tree is dry. So it's a contrast. The tree is green versus the tree is dry is a contrast between a time of blessing and a time of suffering. And he's saying if the national leadership is this terrible now, when you have the Messiah with you, how much more terrible will it be and how much more disastrous will it be during a time of suffering and a time of discipline. So on the way to Golgotha, he announces a prophecy of coming judgment on the nation Israel. 
Then we come to the second major scene, which is the crucifixion itself. This we find in Luke 23:32 through 33 and supplemented with Mark 15 and Matthew 27. It reads like this. Two others who were criminals were being led away to be put to death with him. When they came to the place called the skull, that is Golgotha in the Hebrew, they gave him wine to drink mixed with gall, and after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. It was the third hour when they crucified him. There they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. Now, the first thing that I want to observe here is the first event that occurs when they get there. He's not alone when he goes through the street. There's two other criminals with him. John calls them uh, robbers or thieves and uses the same word which he uses to describe Barabbas. And so it is generally believed that, that these two thieves were part of Barabbas' gang. And he was the leader and he was the one who was released, but not all of them were. And this was a time when when uh, during that day Pilate had probably held several different trials for several different criminals, but the one that that was significant was Jesus. So they haul out these two other uh, criminals and murderers and insurrectionists, and they take them with Jesus and take take them to the place of execution. Now, the typical procedure was before to show just a semblance of mercy prior to crucifixion, they would give wine mixed with myrrh. And that was designed to provide some level of, a, of an anesthetic or a sedative so that it would somewhat lessen the pain. Now, this wasn't a tremendous lessening. But the Lord refuses it completely. Now, why? Because he doesn't want to have his mental capacity dim- diminished Whatsoever, He is going to go through the full degree of suffering, but between 12 noon and 3 p.m. in his omniscience, he is going through every single sin of human history and his dying as a substitute. And he is not going to have his, in his humanity, his brain power diminished or effective, affected at any degree by having it anesthetized. He is going to focus fully and completely on all of the suffering and all of the sins of human history, and there he is going to pay the penalty for human sin. So he completely refuses. As soon as he tastes it, realizes um, that it's an anesthetic, he refuses to accept it. Mark tells us that the time of day now is 9 o'clock in the morning. He was with Pilate from about 6 in the morning, and then roughly from around 7 to 8 was when he was beaten by the Roman soldiers. From 8 to 9, roughly, is the uh, traveling out to the uh, place of execution. And then now, at the third hour, they crucify him. Now, what exactly is crucifixion? Historically, it originated with the probably back to goes back to the Medes and Persians. Although there is evidence that the Greeks crucified pirates as early as the seventh century B.C., but it was the Medes and the Persians who systematized it and were the first to use it on a large scale for punishing criminals. 
when Alexander the Great conquered the Medes and the Persians, then the Greek Empire, the Greeks, adopted the practice of crucifixion, and it began to make its way across the Mediterranean area. The Carthaginians adopted it and refined it, and then when in the Punic Wars, as the Romans became aware of it, they adopted it and made it their primary form of punishment for the lowest criminals and for slaves. According to Tacitus, Roman historian, it was a punishment that was applied primarily to the lower classes, to slaves, to foreigners, and to the worst of criminals. It was the most common form of punishment for slaves who had tried to run away. The Romans exempted the upper classes from crucifixion because it was so horrible. If you were a member of the upper class, the aristocracy, or if you were a Roman citizen, then you were exempted from crucifixion. The Jews even practiced crucifixion. During the first century B.C., the time of the uh, Maccabean uh, period, Alexander Janius executed 800 uh, prisoners by crucifixion. In 4 B.C., the governor of Syria crucified 2,000 Jews for insurrection. That was about the time that Jesus was born. But according to Josephus, who does give us a fairly detailed account of that period, he, does, he records no crucifixions. That doesn't mean there weren't any, but he records no crucifixions other than Jesus between the time of 6 A.D. and 40 A.D., which is the time of the first Roman prefecture. Now, one thing that's interesting to note on this is that uh, one of the popular interpretations of Jesus is that he was some sort of political revolutionary or that he was a, just another messianic figure during a time of tremendous unrest and uh, disruption in Judea, that Judea is always this hotbed of insurrection and revolt. But that's only true of the later period from about 47 A.D. to 70, what's called the time of the second Roman prefecture. But the period from 6 A.D. to 40 A.D. is a time of relative peace and calm. In fact, Josephus only uses the word Mashiach once, and that's in reference to Jesus. According to Josephus, there are no other uh, false messiahs coming along. He does not portray this as a time of revolutionary revolutionaries or insurrection, but a time of relative calm and peace between uh, Judea and Rome. It is not until... Later on, the period of around 45 to 47 A.D., that, that you begin to get a tremendous amount of unrest in Israel. According to uh, Cicero, Cicero, the uh, correct Latin pronunciation, uh, crucifixion was the most cruel and disgusting of all penalties. It was the extreme and ultimate penalty for a slave, and he writes... The very name cross should not only be far from the body of a Roman citizen, but also from his thoughts, his eyes, and his ears. Josephus said it was the most pitiable of all deaths. And in the first century, because it was only for the lowest rung of the social strata, pagan writers constantly ridiculed and scorned Christianity because they had a esteem and honored a man who had been executed in the most vile and shameful of all deaths. Now, there's a lot of debate as to exactly what kind of cross 
was used to crucify Jesus. The Greek word that is used is stauros. S-T-A-U-R-O-S. And it simply refers to a stake that is used in execution. And in earlier forms, what they would do is they would just take a single stake and plant it in the ground, and then they would throw the person on it so that his body was impaled. Of course, that would uh, bring about a relatively quick death. That was refined where they would take a stake and they would take the individual and they would take their hands together on each side of the stake and either tie them or nail them to the top and they would just hang there. Then as it was refined even more, it got to the point where the Romans would put a cross piece on that stake and then they would... Uh, either by means of ropes, tie the arms to that cross piece, or nail them to that cross piece. Sometimes you see a picture that, that the cross that they crucified Jesus on was like the shape of a capital T, so that the cross piece fit on the top of the vertical post. But that does not seem to fit the description in the Scriptures because there is a sign with the indictment against Jesus that he was the king of the Jews, that that sign is hung over his head. So there has to be something above his head on which to uh, nail this. And it is generally believed that the cross looked more like a small T or a plus sign with an elongated bottom, looking something like this. And what they would do is they would take the vertical post and they would notch it or cut a deep groove in that vertical post, and they would then, after nailing or tying the uh, criminal's hands to to the cross piece, then they would lift it up by means of a pulley system, and then they would uh, wedge it in place into this notch and fix it there, and then the victim would hang there. They would also put a small board somewhere down around his buttocks so that he could find temporary, um, a little temporary alleviation of his pain. It wasn't, much, it wasn't a seat because that would carry all of his weight, but it was just enough to where he could work himself up and perhaps uh, prop his uh, buttocks up against it to, to relieve a little pressure, but it wasn't enough to just relax on and he might hang there for all of 30 seconds or a minute and then slip off and the full weight of his body then would once again hang from the nails in his wrist and uh, begin to um, dislocate the shoulders and the elbows and uh, put all of the pressures upon the wrist. Now in crucifixion, though sometimes they tied people, we know from the scriptures that with Jesus they nailed him. Now the Greek word for hand and the Hebrew word yod for hand can refer to anything at the end of the arm. It's not necessarily, it can include the wrist. It's not just technical for the hand. And if you look at your hand, your four finger, the the bones of your four fingers all go down to the base of your hand at your wrist. Now, your palm is made up of mostly muscle, tissue, and flesh. And those bones all come together. So if you were to drive a nail there and then hang your body weight from that, it would just rip loose out between your fingers. 
So what the Romans would do in the, the development of their torture is they discovered that there was a, a, a tremendous sensitivity to pain in the wrist. Now, if any of you have carpal tunnel syndrome, you understand the sensitivity of the nerves that run up along your wrist. And they would drive the nail there between the two bones of your forearm, and it would hang on the bone at the base of your palm. And so that that bone would carry the weight of your body, and it would put pressure from that nail against your carpal tunnel nerve, which is one of the most excruciating most painful uh, things that you can experience. And so as Jesus is hanging there on the cross, he's having all the pressure there, and at the same time his body weight is pulling down from his wrist so that his elbows are, are being dislocated and his shoulders are being pulled from their socket. And in order to achieve any level of relief, he would try to prop himself up a little bit from the base plate, uh, the seat plate, and that would also be necessary in order not to suffocate. Because in crucifixion what happens is as you hang there from the position of the body, the, uh, in the, um, all of the uh, organs in the abdomen are pushed upward against the diaphragm so that it becomes more and more difficult to breathe as the person loses strength. And so they would prop, pull themselves up a little bit in order to relieve that pressure and get a breath. And eventually, and usually it would take anywhere from 36 to 72 hours and sometimes a little bit longer, depending on the strength of the, of the individual, before death would take place. This was why it was so unusual that Jesus died in just a matter, uh, just a little over six hours on the cross. Usually it took much longer than that. That's why they came along, and when we get there, we'll study why they, they broke his legs. So Jesus is brought out. He is nailed to the patibulum. The patibulum is then lifted and placed in the notch on the cross so that his feet probably hung just a foot or two, not much more than that, off of the ground. So he is not elevated very high, just enough to make sure he's off of the ground and can't, can't uh, raise himself up or touch the ground by raising himself up. He is put there in the midst of the other three. By emphasizing the fact that he is put there in the middle, it goes back to a Jewish tra- rabbinical tradition that when three persons are present, the most honored takes his place in the middle. So the writer of Scripture emphasizes that he is placed in the middle so that the focus is upon him. He has the central place. Then we come to another interlude. The first had to do with Jesus' statement to the daughters of Jerusalem, and the next has to do with his statement uh, prayer to the Lord in Luke 23:24. As Jesus has been placed upon the cross, now he prays, Father... Forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Now, next time, we are going to come back and look at the seven sayings of Jesus on the cross, and we will develop this in a little more detail. But this is a perfect example of how impersonal love handles rejection, ridicule, dishonor, abuse, hostility, and antagonism. None of us, I dare say, have ever gone through the kind of rejection 
that Jesus experienced during this 24-hour period. The people he came to save have rejected he have rejected him. They have ridiculed him. They are, have despised him. They are hurling all kinds of verbal and physical abuse at him. And yet he does not respond with mental attitude sins of anger, resentment, bitterness, uh, vindictiveness. He does not respond with sins of the tongue by responding in kind to them. He keeps his mouth shut. His mental attitude is focused on the Lord and there is no mental attitude sins and there are no overt sins. He does not try to uh, escape. He doesn't try to hit anybody in uh, response to their hitting him. He is perfectly relaxed. And see, that is the emphasis on impersonal love. Whenever you say, I love you, you always have a subject and an object with a transitive verb. Now, when you make the statement, I love you, when there is something attractive, something positive, something uh, beautiful or winsome in the object of love, then we call that personal love because you know something about the person. There's some personal relationship involved with the person you are loving And that personal love emphasizes something attractive in the object of love. But here, there is nothing attractive in the object of love because all mankind is obnoxious to God. Romans 5.8 says, "...in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us." In a state of rebellion and antagonism towards God, where all of our works of righteousness are as filthy rags, God still loved us not because of who and what we are, but because of who and what He is. So this is why we call it impersonal love. It is also unconditional love. It is a love that is not conditioned on any qualities or behavior on the part of the object of love. The reason it is called impersonal love is to emphasize the fact that it is not even necessary to have personal acquaintance or knowledge of the object of love. We can love our enemies. We can love our neighbor. You can uh, demonstrate this kind of love towards somebody who you do not know, but has somehow offended you or abused you or hurt you. And this is what we see here with Jesus on the cross. And he prays, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And this exemplifies for us the exact attitude that we are to have towards other people. It is not up to us to judge other people or to hold them accountable for their sins. Now, in some ways, in some situations, we are in a position where we do hold people accountable, uh, such as parents to children, and in other employers to employees, and in other circumstances. But forgiveness has to do with our own mental attitude. There is a distinction, and it's an important distinction. I find that people are, are, um, there's a lot of confusion over forgiveness. Some people think that forgiveness means that there's no accountability. But see, there was accountability in God's forgiveness. Jesus is the one who was held accountable. The penalty was paid by Jesus Christ. There are consequences for our sins, even though God forgives us. Forgiveness has to do with the fact that there is no mental attitude sins, no 
uh, vindictiveness. There is no hatred, anger, or bitterness on our part towards someone because of what they have done towards us. And we are going to treat them in the best manner possible, not predicated on what they have done, but on who Christ is and what he has done for us. Therefore, it is not something that is returning evil for evil. That is not our responsibility. Now, it may be necessary under some conditions to uh, hold someone accountable in some way for their actions. For example, in a case where you have a marriage where the uh, one party, sometimes it happens with women, but usually the man is the abuser, physically, uh, physically abuses the wife, the wife needs to... Uh, she can forgive the husband, and by that I mean she doesn't uh, try to execute judgment on him herself. She puts him in the hands of the Lord, but she leaves. She doesn't hold bitterness, resentment, anger, hostility towards him because that keeps her out of fellowship and doesn't do her any good. But she does not keep herself in a position where her life is threatened. She should leave and she should take her children with her so that they are protected and their life is preserved so that they are not in a position of, of a physical threat. And that is necessary. So that shows you the difference between forgiveness and consequences. Forgiveness doesn't mean, oh, I stay in that situation and keep being beat up on. That's not what forgiveness means. Forgiveness does not mean that if you see someone who is a criminal who has perhaps committed murder, that now that they are a believer and they are forgiven, that they don't still go to the uh, uh, whatever it is, injection now or electric chair, or that they still don't get executed. Just because they are forgiven doesn't mean that consequences aren't paid for. Now, when God disciplines us and God forgives us, sometimes he does wipe out the consequences. Sometimes he lessens the consequences, and sometimes the consequences remain the same. But forgiveness and suffering the consequences for an action are two different issues. Two different issues, and always remember that. And so Jesus prays, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Here he emphasizes the fact that, that especially in relationship to the Roman soldiers, they have no appreciation, no understanding of the dimensions of what they are doing in crucifying the the eternal second person of the Trinity. And then we see that prophecy is fulfilled here. John 19, 18 and 19 says, There they crucified him, and with him two other men, one on either side and Jesus in between. Mark 15:28 adds, And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And he was numbered with the transgressors. So here we see the emphasis that as he is set, crucified between the two thieves, this indeed is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Then we come to the third scene. The third scene is the Jewish antagonism to the sign. This is mostly revealed by John in John 19, verses 20 through 24. John tells us that Pilate, which was typical after when a criminal is crucified, they would take whatever the charge was and they would write it on some sort of poster or placard and then they would attach it to the cross so people would understand what his crime was. And so Pilate has an inscription written and put on the cross which reads, this, and this is the full account. Some gospel says this is Jesus, King of the Jews. Others just say, one other gospel says it's the King of the Jews. One gospel says uh, Jesus, 
the Nazarene, king of the Jews. But if you put them together, what the sign said was, this is Jesus, the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. So this is quite an interesting inscription. It is written in three languages. The place we're told, it says, Therefore many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. Now the Jews, in John's terminology, is always talking about the rulers, the uh, rulers of the synagogue, the Sanhedrin, and this just really angered them. But they have to be careful how they handle this, because they, if, they, if they push it too much, that Pilate might change the wording. And if he changes the wording, for example, if if he changed the wording and said, Jesus said, I am, and used that word, a me, ego, a me, then they would be putting the name of God up there. So they've got, they, 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 they're angry about it, but they can't push it too far because if he changes the wording in a number of different directions, it, it makes it even worse. So they, uh, they complained because he had it, he wanted to make sure everybody understood what was going on. This was Pilate's little way of getting back at the Jewish leaders for putting him in a spot. And he had it written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. Now, the reason it's written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek, it's written in Hebrew so that all the Jews would be able to read it and understand it. It's written in Latin so that the Roman soldiers would all understand it. And it's written in Greek, which was the common language, the lingua franca of the eastern Mediterranean area, that all the nations and all the peoples who went by would be able to read it and understand it. This is how the sovereignty of God works in conjunction with the free will of man so that this announcement that Jesus is the King of the Jews, even though Pilate is writing it tongue-in-cheek with a touch of irony, he doesn't believe it. He writes it in such a way that it announces the truth, that it is indeed Jesus the Nazarene who is the Messiah and is the King of the Jews. And this just angers the chief priests and the leaders of the synagogue and Sanhedrin. And so they come to Pilate and they say, don't write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. But, but even that is, they don't push it too much. And Pilate just says, okay, you've had 